0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict.
1: See if you remember this this little poem. I won't be able to say it like he said it, but uh, this brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight champion is his destiny. The kid fights great, he's got speed and endurance, but if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. The kid's got a left, the kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you are asleep for the night. And as you lie on the floor while the ref counts 10, you pray that you won't have to fight me again. But I'm the man this poem is about, the next champion of the world, there isn't a doubt. If Cassius says a cow can lay an egg, don't ask how. grease the skillet. Uh, He is the greatest. When I say two, there's never a third. Uh, betting against me is completely ab- absurd. When Cassius says a mouse can outrun a horse, don't ask how. Put your money where your mouse is. I am the greatest. Who said it? Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay. He didn't have any problem with poor self-image. And <laughs> and it was six months after he wrote this, he was uh, very much an underdog in his fight with world champion Sonny Liston. But he, he beat Sonny Liston and went on to, to reign a long time as the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. We're going to talk to you today about conflict. Conflict uh, in our world, conflict in our church, but primarily the church. And Jesus, you may want to join me in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is giving us a paradigm for how to deal with conflict, conflict in the church. And there's the passage that was read to you this morning the the preceding verses to that in chapter 17 i think lay the groundwork and answer the question why did they say what they did at that time in terms of asking the question who is the greatest you see what happened at the end of chapter 17 is uh, some of the the people were saying to the disciples does your teacher pay taxes and the answer was sure yes he does and when peter got into the house where jesus was staying in capernaum Uh, Jesus said, uh, when a king demands taxes, does he demand it of his sons or of others? And Peter said, well, of others. He said, that's right. He he demands it of others. Therefore, we are free. However, so we won't cause an offense. Go out and throw a line in the water and catch a fish. And the first fish that bites, pull it in. And in his mouth, you're going to find a shekel. And with that shekel, go pay my taxes and yours. Not because we have to, but because we don't want to cause an offense. That's going to be critical as Jesus develops the answer to that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? You see, when Jesus called those disciples, they didn't have resumes. He didn't call them because he absolutely needed a Peter or a a John or a James or a Bartholomew. He called them, and the only answer the Bible gives is the same reason he called us, according to the good pleasure of his will. He called us and we came with no resume. But somewhere along the line for the disciples, I think something happened. As they're performing miracles in Jesus' name, as they're casting out demons, as they're feeding thousands. They begin to ask the question Who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? <clears throat> and you say, well, which one of those asked the question? We don't know. It could have been any of them. It could have been any of us. You see, pride is uh, something that comes natural to the human nature. And we're proud and we need to be humbled. And so maybe it was Peter who said, uh, as they're walking along and they're like, we would talk about uh, the Lions game this afternoon and their chances of winning. They may be saying, well, uh, who's greatest in the kingdom? Who's gonna be the best? And I can imagine Peter, apparently it's not me. It's <laughs> 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 Sorry, Mike. <laughs> um, I can imagine Peter saying, let's, let's, let's just talk for a bit about walking on water Let's tell our walking on water stories. You go first. nobody has them. But Peter says, I've got the world Guinness record for walking on water. I've been in the the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. I'm the greatest. Or maybe he says to the other disciples, which one of you guys caught a fish and found a shekel in his mouth. Anybody? You see, something happens, folks. Something happens where we start off humble, where we have nothing, we have no resume, but along the way, God chooses to use us in some way, and somehow we think we had something to do with it. And that's when pride. It happened all through the Old Testament. The Bible says when Saul... When his heart was lifted up in pride, God took his hand off of him. So we wanna look at that today, but I wanna start with a premise. And that is in this community of faith, how do, we, how do we behave in the community of faith? And I think there are two foundational stones on which we build our relationship, on which we build Woodside Bible in terms of a relationship. One of them is love and the other is humility to me it's fascinating uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer uh, who was well ahead of his times in terms of seeing what the world was all about and many of us benefited so much from his life and ministry Libri in Switzerland where he helped so many find faith but he, um, he preached a, a sermon and it was picked up by InterVarsity and it was later found in the appendix of one of his books The Church at the End of the 20th Century but he said Jesus has given the opportunity for people in our world to decide whether or not you're a true believer. Think about that. Jesus gave permission to people who don't know him to to determine if we're really who we say we are. When Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples, all men. By this shall all men know you're my disciples. I wonder what their verdict would be about the reality of our faith. So we're going to dive into this in the next five weeks. What does greatness look like in a church? Two things here I want to share with you in these moments together. One, pursue dependence instead of power. Let's go back to this story. Um, Let me read the first four verses again. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This wasn't a new question. They were asking this question and discussing it probably for six months prior to this. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I love it when Jesus answers the question with an object lesson an object lesson that probably those disciples would never, ever forget. Who's the greatest? And I don't know if they're expecting him to point to one of them, but what Jesus does is he calls a child. The word there is a neutral word. It doesn't mean male or female, just a child. We don't know the age, but obviously old enough to be able to walk and old enough to understand and obey uh, and walk to Jesus. And Jesus puts that child in the midst of the disciples. And he said these words, unless you turn. The word there, turn, is the same word we, we understand as repent. And it means to do a complete turnaround. So repentance, that complete turnaround, is necessary in coming to Jesus. But then he says, "So we all have to turn. Uh, you find that throughout the, the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament especially, where they turn from their sins to serve a living and true God, the Thessalonians but uh, so he says then you need to become like this child why would he choose a child to illustrate entrance into the kingdom there are some things about children um, that we don't want to be right indecisive any of you had any indecisive children or grandchildren what do you want to eat I don't know I want this then you put it in front of me I don't want that children can be indecisive Children can sometimes, from what I've heard, throw temper tantrums, right? Uh, children can be hard to get along with sometimes. Um, but there's something about a child that Jesus emphasized here that's the picture, and that is dependence. Come as a child, completely dependent. A child has no social status, a child has no resume to say, here's, here's why I need to come into your kingdom. A child has nothing. And that's how we need to come in complete dependence on the father so that when the father says come, we respond in obedience and come. Folks, we, we come as a child and then we grow up and mature and so forth, but we, never, we must never stop being a child in terms of dependence And Jesus made that clear to the disciples in the night before he was crucified uh, in the upper room yet, where he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Um, Without me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can do all things. So we're totally dependent upon it. Even in the Old Testament, uh, the writer of uh, Psalm 127, uh, Solomon, said, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, you're guarding it in vain. Um, and you say, well, what have we done then? What have, what have we to be proud of? C.S. Lewis would answer that question by saying nothing. He said, don't even use the word proud because you're taking attention upon yourself and not God. We use that word with our children, especially with our grandchildren. And we know what we mean by that. And we're not trying to take any glory from God, but even people who, who say, uh, I'm proud of my kids. Recognize Psalm 127 said, children are a gift, a nahal, a, a heritage from God. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. So folks, we have that dependence. So he says here, come as children, totally dependent. Now let's make sure we understand Humility. So let me take you, let me give you a couple of definitions first. One definition is by C.J. Mahaney, who wrote the book, Humility. And in that book he said, humility defined is the honest assessment of myself based on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That helps put perspective into humility. Another author, I read him 35 years ago and I love his definition. I don't like to use his name much because he ended his ministry in a horrible way where um, pride got in the way of his life and it was a mess. But his definition was this, uh, humility is the recognition that what's accomplished in my life is a direct result of the work of God and others. So humility is recognizing that. And then when praise comes, deflect it to the people or the person who made it happen. Um, Let me share four passages of scripture with you. If you want to, if you're fast in your Bibles, join me. If not, I think it'll be on the screen. Uh, First Peter chapter five. In verse number five, Peter is writing now. He says, likewise, Verse number five, you who are are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That little verse right there gives you all you need to know in terms of motivation to be humble. One, because God opposes the proud. Who wants to be in a place of being opposed to God? I don't. The second reason, because God gives grace to the humble. Folks, we need the grace of God to humble ourselves. And because we're not good enough to do it on our own. And we also need the grace of God to stay humble. So those are two reasons. Then he goes on to say, humble yourselves. This is the pattern. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So he's saying, humble yourselves. Um, Some people say, I'm just going to pray that God would humble me. Really? Do you think that's a good idea? Do you really want him to answer that prayer? I think that's why the scripture says, that's why Jesus said, that's what Peter says, what James said. Humble yourselves. Because God can answer that prayer. But I think you'd rather humble yourself. And he will lift you up in due time, and by that means in his time, when it's best. Um, Colossians says the same thing. Well that, We'll not look at that passage right now. But he uses a metaphor, not only in, in Peter, uh, but in James, but also Paul writes in Colossians. This metaphor is take off. Take off the clothing of bitterness and wrath and pride and prejudice, clamoring. Take it off like dirty old clothes and throw it down. Never to put those clothes on again. Never. Instead, as, as Peter says here, put on humility. Put on righteousness. These are really going to help as we lay a foundation for the resolving of conflicts. We have to have humility. Humility. Um, another passage and perhaps the best passage on humility is found in Paul's letter to the Philippian believers Philippians chapter 2 I think there are four chapters in scripture that really uh, capsulize the person of Jesus as the son of God the second person of the trinity Uh, three of them are first chapters John chapter 1 Hebrews chapter 1 Colossians chapter 1 and this to throw us off Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, they had a problem in the church of Philippi because they had a couple of ladies that weren't getting along, Euodia and Syntyche. They weren't getting along and so Paul writes to them and he says, "Come on. We have to have this unity. But before you have unity, you have to have humility." And then he uses an illustration of humility. That's Jesus. He shares the story of Jesus humbling himself, and he says, "That's our model. If you have that humility, you can begin to have unity." And so, let me tell, you, let me share, uh, starting in verse number four, these verses from Paul. Let each of you look not only on your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. It's really interesting. We don't have a lot of time to go into this passage, but he said when he was in the form of God, the word there is morphe. It means inner essence being. In other words, if you looked at the outward form of Jesus, you would see he's a Jewish man. You see his hands are the hands of a carpenter. But if you could see inside you would say, that's God. That is God. So he's using that word saying his inner essence or being is deity. But he didn't think that that was something that he had to hold on so tightly. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form, same word, form of a servant. So that's who he was. The son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And so that's the, that becomes the, the uh, for Woodside Bible and for me and for you, it becomes the ethos of who we are. Our, our ethos is to serve. And so we're constantly looking not to be served, but to saying, how can I serve you? That's what we try to do with pastors through Barnabas. So often I close an email by saying, how can I serve you? We want to be servants. He goes on here. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Think about this just for a moment, folks. <clears throat> Jesus, according to Colossians 1, created the world. By him all things are held together by him. all things consist. And at just the right time, Galatians chapter four, he left the splendor and the glory of the throne room of heaven to come down, to descend to earth, all the way down. To be born of a baby in a mother's womb. To be born and then to live, uh, to work, to teach, to preach, to perform miracles, to, uh, to endure abuse, to preach. And then one day, As his time was coming to the close, he'd made his way from Jericho down to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, in the upper room, the night before he was crucified, he's sharing with his disciples. But before he shares those beautiful words of John 13 and following, they get in the room and it's Jesus did a task that was normally assigned to the lowest of servants. And that is, washing feet washing feet so he covered himself and he got down on his hands and knees with a basin and with a towel and went from one to another and washed the dirt um, from the streets where the animals had been one to another and washed their feet even one who would betray him even one who would deny him he washed their feet. And then he said to them, do you understand what I'm doing? The way I've served, I've set an example now for you to serve. Wash each other's feet. And he wasn't meaning necessarily the ceremonial washing of feet. Some churches have foot washing as an ordinance, but the day you do foot washing, you wanna wash your feet before you go, right? He's saying, serve each other. Find ways of serving each other. That's Jesus, the humility. It doesn't end there. I want you to see the paradigm. Therefore, the old Bible teachers would always say, once you see the word therefore, always look to see what it's there for. And we, what's this therefore? Verses six through eight. When you humble yourself, Therefore, God will exalt you, highly exalted Jesus and bestowed in him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Here's a paradigm, folks. If we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. We humble ourselves, God will exalt us. By the way, it's just the opposite of what you find in Isaiah chapter 14 where the example of Lucifer, uh, the, the devil, who exalted himself. And God said, you're going down. And he lost his lofty position as an angel of light before the Lord. We humble ourselves. There's another practice here. What does greatness look like in our church where we pursue dependence instead of power? Let's never grow out of being dependent children to our Heavenly Father. Secondly, practice loving care instead of introducing temptations. Notice verses five and six. Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. We got to stop there. The practice is receiving. Receiving my children here, a child in my name. And again, it's not referring now to this little one. It's because it goes on in the next verse, that child believes in me. So these are believers of all ages, of all backgrounds. Some scholars suggest that the term might have meant the way they were looked at because they didn't have great faith or they were new in their faith or they didn't know the Bible well or maybe because they were marginalized because of what they did before they came to know Jesus And so he said, we're all in this body of Christ. When people come who know Jesus, receive them. He's not saying uh, accept all their sin. He's saying receive them as believers. In the foyer after, between first and second service, I heard this twice, where somebody was greeting someone, and I'm close enough to hear. I tried not to listen, but I did anyhow. Um, (laughs) But they said, uh, when they saw a friend come in, they said, I guess they'll let anybody in this place. They were joking sarcastically, but may that always be the truth. That we as the church of Jesus Christ will accept people who've come to know him. Um, years ago when I started pastoring this church, we had a little s- slogan back then that we wanted to be a workplace, not a show place we want to be a place that welcomed people who wanted to grow in their faith. And this wasn't a, a museum for uh, seasoned relics of the faith. We want to be a workplace, not a show place. I remember when we took our kids to like an amusement park when they were younger. And when we were younger, we would have, they would have maybe this yardstick this, with the, the, the measurement. And you had to be like 42 inches, depending on the uh, amusement, before you could get in. Of course, the little kids who are on the border, there's, you know, trying so hard to be a little taller to get in. The church has nothing like that. The church has nothing like that. We're to receive, we're to welcome those who know Jesus as Savior. No matter what their background, no matter what their spiritual aptitude, if they know Jesus, they're part of the body. There's a second warning here that's given, and that is don't introduce to temptation. And he said, uh, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, these newer believers, these believers perhaps who haven't grown a lot yet, these marginalized believers, if we do anything to cause them to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Do you think God is taking this seriously? A millstone um, probably started around 1,000 pounds and went up from there. But just given a millstone being 1,000 pounds, can you imagine a millstone, a 1,000 pounds, wrapped around your neck and you're pushed into the sea? It doesn't matter how good of a swimmer you are. You're going down all the way and fast. And if I could paraphrase, Jesus is saying it would be better if you were dead, it'd be better if you were dead than causing a brother to stumble. We have to have humility. So what does that mean? Humility, let me share one more story. Do you have time? Thank you, you're kind. There's a story in the Old Testament. That was all, it's intriguing to me. It's about a, a, a Syrian, not a Jew, not an Israelite. but He lived up in Syria, and he was the commander of the army for the king of Syria. And the Lord had his hand on him. His, his name was Naaman. The Lord had his hand on him to such a degree that he was highly honored. And there was a, there's a, a, one little verse that says, And he was a, a great man of valor, but he was a leper. And I was, whoa, that's a game changer. With leprosy, there was no known cure. In Israel, if you were diagnosed with leprosy and affirmed by a priest, you were sent outside the city and live in a separate colony by yourself. You had rules; you couldn't come close to people without covering your upper lip fifty yards and saying unclean, unclean. There's no cure. And so, in God's providence, in one of the raids down in Israel this captain of that army captured a young girl and brought her back to Syria where she served in his household. And this is her captor now. But she said to him, would it be good if my master had known the prophet Elisha in Samaria because he would heal you? That's great news for Naaman. He goes to the king, I need to go to Samaria. The king said, I'll write you a letter, send it to the king of Israel, uh, take it to him. And along with a lot of gold and money and that kind of thing, he came down, to talked to the king of Israel. The king of Israel was, was upset. He said, this is some kind of trap because I can't kill people. And as soon as the king of Syria recognizes I can't deliver, he's going to come in and I'm, he's going to kill me. So he tears his clothes, He's all upset. Um, and then Elisha hears word of this Elisha is the prophet remember that followed up Elijah and Elisha said send them to me so he sent him to the prophet's house now get this picture this is a big shot commander of the army has a letter from the king of Syria he's got money he's got chariots and horses and servants with him and he comes to Elisha's door and knocks on the door and Elisha doesn't answer. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's watching reruns of Judge Judy or something like that. But he's, he doesn't go to the door. And he would say, Elisha, there's a big shot on your porch. But I think God was whispering in the ear of Elijah, Elisha. And he sent a servant to the door. A servant. The servant comes to the door, <clears throat> meets Naaman. And said, Elisha said, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And you'll be clean. Close the door. Naaman is upset. And he leaves. And he said, the prophet couldn't even come on the porch himself. And call on the name of his most high God. Put his hand over me and heal me. If I wanted to dip in a river, I could have dipped in two rivers in Syria that were a lot cleaner than the muddy Jordan. I'm not doing it. And is it possible that Naaman had a disease worse than leprosy? Pride. You know, there are some people who would would rather die than humble themselves. There are some people who'd rather see their marriages die than humble themselves. There are some people who'd rather see a relationship go away than humble themselves. As he's going away angry, fortunately, fortunately, his servants said to him, These weren't the exact words, but I think it's close. You're an idiot. <laughs> You're going to die. You're going to die. And he said, you will be cleansed. Just do it. And he went down and he dipped. And he was cleansed. Folks, we have to humble ourselves. And he goes on to say here in this last verse, that if we live in such a way, let's take Woodside. This is the body of Christ. And I felt the heaviness of this verse for the years I pastored here. That I knew people were watching. And if I did anything in terms of sin that could cause them to sin, or at least give them permission, or felt like permission to sin, that weight, that millstone is around my neck. That's heavy. But he's not just talking to pastors. He's talking to all of us, that we need to guard each other. And the best way to guard each other is first guard ourselves so that we live lives that honor Jesus. We clothe ourselves in humility and holiness. With the work of Barnabas, we work with a lot of pastors. Our preference is to work in prevention, to catch them before bad mistakes are made, to encourage them, to keep them in the game. Occasionally we work with restoration after the fact. And that's always hard, it's difficult, there are no guarantees. And I remember a pastor in my basement came, came to see me. It was the first of many meetings. And he had deeply committed, he pastored a significant church. He had deeply committed sin. And he said to me in, the, in my basement, He said, God's forgiven me and my wife has forgiven me. I need to move on. I said, no, you have no idea. You have no idea what your sin did to the children of your church or some young people in your church who saw that and their pastor's no longer in front of them that your sin perhaps gave them permission to walk away. Your sin gave them permission to sin. That's heavy. God can forgive, but we shouldn't even talk about repentance until we can fully absorb what the weight of our sin has done to the body of Christ. So folks, we're, we're not on our own. When you're, when you're tempted to sin, again, whatever it is, recognize you've got thousands of people that bear your same name that are looking at you. That lays the foundation for for uh, for resolving conflict. I'd like to close with a poem. I don't know who I don't know who wrote it. I know I didn't. But let me read the poem and see if you would agree. We come in as children. Completely dependent. We grow in all kinds of ways, but we never can, should grow out of our dependence as children, no matter how long we've known the Lord. Make me, O Lord, a child again, so tender, frail, and small, and self possessing nothing, and in thee possessing all. O Savior, make me small once more, that downward I may grow, and in this heart of mine restore the faith of long ago. With Thee may I be crucified, no longer I that lives. O Savior, crush my sinful pride by grace which pardon gives. Make me, O Lord, a child again, obedient to Thy call, in self-possessing nothing, and in Thee possessing all. Lord, as we come into Your kingdom as children, Lord, may we never grow out of dependence. Through accomplishments, through our resumes, may we completely depend on Jesus. And we'll thank you in his name. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.